Hello, welcome to Head on History. I'm your host, Ali Alomi. Glad you could join me. I wanted to start off by giving a quick shout out to all my lovely students who've been tuning in and listening to the podcast. You all are awesome. Listening to me during class and then podcasts while you're driving or gymming or whatever it is you cool kids do nowadays. I hope you're all enjoying your winter break, and I'll see some of you back in class uh, in winter quarter. Um, I wanted to welcome the new and old listeners. I just checked some of our stats, and we had a huge rash of new listeners um, after some recent episodes. So that's great. We're actually, uh, this season, for whatever reason, is growing exponentially. I don't know if it was a result of our special episode or something else, but we're breaking last season's record. So welcome to all of you. Thank you for making this podcast so successful. Um, as usual, if you're enjoying this podcast, don't hesitate to leave a review on iTunes. I love hearing your feedback, and it also helps the podcast tremendously. It takes a couple minutes out of your day. Just go on to your a podcast app or on iTunes, leave a five-star rating, and uh, some of your thoughts. I actually love hearing what you have to say. Uh, you can also get a hold of me on Instagram and Twitter at A-A-O-L-O-M-I or use the hashtag Head on History, which I check regularly. All right, so this week I wanted to continue our series on the theology of Islam and discuss the history of Shiism. Last week we talked about the history of Sunnism and how Sunni Islam kind of emerged. Now, we didn't focus fully on the developments of the theology of Sunnism, just the kind of early formulations, the early kind of justifications for what became um, the largest kind of denomination in Islam. And today we're going to do the same thing with Shiism. We're not going to talk about the full theology until next week where we're going to take both of these histories and kind of put them together and talk much more about the intellectual developments. Instead, this week what I'm going to do is talk about the beginnings of Shia Islam. Like, Where did it come from? What are some of the original thoughts about Shia Islam? Uh, Why was there there split between uh, the two groups? Is it easy? Is it accurate to say Sunni versus Shia sacked, what really are the dynamics here? Now, to understand the schism between these two groups, and it is kind of a schism, we have to go back to what happened after the death of Muhammad. When he died, his followers were faced with a crisis of authority. Who would lead this new community? Muhammad had forged this big coalition, right, of of Arab Muslims, Arab Christians, Arab Jews, monotheists known as Hanifs. All of them were brought together in this new super tribe known as as the Ummah or Jama'at, right, or the the gathering of peoples, this Ummah, this this massive community, um, was really the first of its kind in Arabia up until this point. It, Arabia had was organized in a completely different social structure, and so the debate over who would rule the community um, re-exerted some older tribal tensions. Muhammad had managed to suppress these tensions and instead forge unity through the sheer will of his kind of charismatic presence as this prophetic character, right? As this individual who was uh, bringing God's message to the people. He was a direct connection to the divine. His words were... A link, you know, his words carried weight and authority. His presence was something that was exemplar for the people. But once that's gone, well, what do you do? How does the community survive? Up until this point, they had rallied around um, a person and a message. Now, the message isn't changed. The message 
is the same. You know, you have this singular notion of God, you have devotion to this God, you have social, a sort of desire to create a socially just society or a perfect society on earth. But how, who then is going to lead that new society? Part of Islam is not that you, you have this personal devotion and that's it. The personal devotion is only one aspect of Islam. And very early on, if you listen to our episodes on jihad, if you listen to our episodes about early Islam, very, very clear within the uh, ideas and the thought and the theology of the Quran and the, the prescription of the Quran, as well as within the life of Muhammad, is the idea that Islam is one part personal faith and and one part social movement, that it is about changing society, specifically a society that has fallen into disarray and decay, and that is namely pre-Islamic Arabia. So what happens when you've got the personal faith down? Great, you're praying to God, you accept the one God is your true God. What happens to that just society? Does it fall apart? Does it cease to exist now that the prophet is gone? Who then will step up and forge the community together who then will be the arbiter of justice who then will be the person who enforces the law all those questions really came to the forefront and it was all about authority so the debate as i mentioned re-exerted an older tribal tension with muhammad gone the thing the glue that kind of kept these tribes together started to fray in pre-islamic arabia society was divided according to tribal loyalties Whatever tribe you were part of, and tribe is a kind of a weird way of describing this because it assumes that all of Arabia lived in kind of nomadic fashions, but that's not entirely accurate. Tribe is one way to look at it. Clan is another way to look at it. These are really family bonds of people who often lived in close proximity with to one another, generally located within cities. Not always that the case. Sometimes there were distant relatives. But because they had these kinship ties, those kinship ties were the primary uh, markers of identity. You were so-and-so of so-and-so tribe. Muhammad, for example, uh, was Muhammad of the Banu Hashim, right? The Banu Hashim is a particular family within a much larger tribe known as the Quraysh, right? So there's these kind of branches within branches and where you were uh, connected and who you were connected to, uh, where your lines intersected, determined your place in society. Would you go on to be a trader? Would you go on to become wealthy? Would you become poor? Are you in the outskirts of society or the uh, inners of society? Are you part of the mechanisms of power or not? And for Muhammad, he was very clearly on the outskirts of power. He was an orphan who had very little protection. And so he lived in the kind of marginalia. He lived in the liminal state. And so yet again, when he passed on, those divisions came right back to the forefront. People fell back onto those tribal uh, associations and affiliations more so than their affiliations in faith. Muhammad had said, no, you are bound by religion, not by, by blood. And now, yet again, in their moment of crisis, they were kind of turning to that moment. Um, in particular, some of the tribes were aligned with the Sasanian Empire and some with the Byzantine Empire. Remember, for many years, centuries, even these two great empires had dominated the region and were waging war against one another. And more importantly, they had torn apart the fabric of Arabia because what they did is they had, um, when they were tired of fighting one another directly, they fought through proxies. They would hire or 
take on these kind of tribes as their vassals, or what in, in Latin was known as the federales, uh, the, these kind of mini uh, extensions of their empire, and wage war against one another. So they would literally put tribe against tribe um, in order to carry out their kind of imperial competition. And if you're interested, you can you can read more or listen more about that in our first season. I did a whole episode on the Red Sea Wars or whatnot, but that gives you a more detailed history. I'm just kind of summarizing some of those tensions that we've already talked about so you can understand where we are when Muhammad dies. So in addition to the fact that for centuries you had these, these tribes that were either aligned with the Sasanians or the Byzantines, that alliance was broken with the coming of Muhammad, but when Muhammad dies, those kind of old resentments and tensions, tensions start to bubble up to the surface. And then you also had geographic divisions, which were part of that kind of imperial consideration or formulation and imagination of the geography. Those geographic divisions were between northern Arabia and southern Arabia. Um, and into this kind of mix, the Quraysh had emerged as the dominant hegemon, as the singular tribe that had really benefited from this makeup. Uh, most of the tribe opposed Muhammad because he upset this order. The Quraysh uh, had, most of the Quraysh tribe opposed Muhammad because he was threatening their financial well-being, their political well-being. They had emerged as being these kind of successful people in this mix. Well, everyone else was fighting and whatnot. They had, you know, designated themselves the guardian of this shrine known as the Kaaba and that pilgrims would have to come to them and when pilgrims came, they brought with them trade and they had this vibrant marketplace where goods were flowing through, and they would really there was a real serious social stratification. Which the poor were desperately poor, and the Quraysh were up at the top. And so the, between these empires fighting, the Quraysh had benefited. Muhammad had upset that order. As a result of that opposition, Muhammad had to seek allies outside of Mecca, which was the Quraysh's kind of headquarters or home base, if you will. And he was forced to migrate to Yathrib, which was kind of duly named Medina. Now, again, we talked about this in our first season. But, you know, check that out for a little bit more details. But this helped helps us to understand a little bit of the tribal dynamics. You had clearly one group, one tribe, the Quraysh, who had been benefited for a long time in Arabia as a result of the kind of imperial machinations that had divided up the, the region. And that was the Quraysh. You had a geographic in which the Quraysh more northern, with their northern allies, especially those allies who were connected to um, uh, the Byzantine Empire, they had developed long, strong connections, whereas the southern tribes felt that they were being exploited. The southern tribes were far more connected to the Sasanian Empire. So when Muhammad died, a group of the converts in Medina wanted Ali to succeed Muhammad. Now, why did they want Ali to succeed? This group eventually is known as the Shiatul Ali. That literally just means the party of Ali. And the word Shia comes means party or partisan of Ali. Uh, most historians refer to this early group as just the Aliyids, these people who were for Ali. And I keep saying Ali, and it sounds like I'm talking about myself, or I'm having a weird, like, moment where I'm, like, this arrogant moment where I'm talking about myself in the third person. But we're talking about the historic figure of Ali. Um, and so what the, the early Shiatul Ali, or the partisans of Ali, were just a faction that supported Ali's claim. There was not a lot of theological 
technological developments at this point yet. But they did believe that Ali was supposed to be the rightful ruler. And the reason why they believed that Ali should succeed, or at least the reason why they believed he would be the better candidate, was he was seen as someone who was favorable to the new converts. The members of Yathrib, the, the Medinan converts, were new, and they were a smaller tribe. They were not as powerful as the Quraysh. And so as a result, they thought that he would be the one that would break up the cabal and the hegemony of the Quraysh. Ali also had family family connections to them. He had connections vis-a-vis -vis marriage. He was married to someone named Khawla bint Jafar of the Banu Hanifa. The Banu Hanifa were a southern tribe. They were a part of the Federalis, or they were part of a vassal tribe of the Sasanians. So here we see that kind of imperial machinations we talked about earlier, or that imperial division of the region earlier. So the Banu Hanifa were allied with the Sasanians, and they favored Ali very strongly because they thought that he would be favorable towards their tribe the southern tribes, those tribes that had originally been more aligned with the Sasanians, and those who had been left out of the kind of power brokering and power sharing that we saw with the Quraysh, and he, that he would be favorable towards the early converts. On the other hand, you had another group of individuals who were basically Quraishi aristocrats. These were people like Omar ibn uh, Omar ibn Khattab, um, Abu Bakr as-Siddiq. These people were Quraishi. They were from Mecca. They were part of that major tribe. And though they were ostracized because they converted to Islam, when the Quraysh were conquered and Mecca were reconquered, uh, the Quraysh converted predominantly to Islam and they were forgiven for their original opposition to Muhammad. And so they were once more drawn into the Quraysh's family fabric. And so they this other side didn't want Ali to be elected. They wanted someone from their own group to be elected. And their group were those that were the, of the Quraysh. And the Quraysh were very strongly aligned in the same way that Ali was aligned to the Banu Hanifa. The Quraysh were very strongly aligned to the Banu Umayyah, in particular through um, Uthman. Uthman was going to eventually end up being the third caliph of the Rashidun. But he, his family, the Banu uh, Umayyah, were strong, were part of the Quraysh, and they were strongly aligned with the Byzantine. They were considered to be a client of the Byzantine Empire. And so here you have that old pre-Islamic division between the Byzantines and the Sasanians once more acting out in the tribal differences that start to emerge post the death of Muhammad. Now, the uh, Shiatul Ali planned on having Ali elected. Uh, they had even gathered. But what happened is that Abu Bakr and Uthman got wind of this and were able to kind of crash the party. And they gathered people around them, gathered enough support to argue that no, the succession or the, the mantle of authority would not pass dynastically, but vis-a-vis -vis in some form of election. Now, it's not necessarily a kind of democratic uh, election that we would think of, but mostly as a sort of uh, parliamentary almost, like you would have people who would vote amongst themselves. So you wouldn't have like a party or you wouldn't have anyone couldn't be caliph. It was specifically a group of close companions of Muhammad. These would be people who are obviously educated in Islam, early converts who had strong family connections. And out of this kind of political negotiation that happened, Abu Bakr was elected the Khalifa. Now, the Shiatul Ali, those who had wanted Ali to succeed, eventually predominantly mostly accepted Abu Bakr. 
Ali himself as well. Ali accepted Abu Bakr as Khalif. This is often forgotten in kind of much later partisan discussions because the Sunni and the Shia end up uh, fighting in a much more acrimonious way. But early on, it becomes a sort of negotiation. It's not an easy negotiation. There's a lot of hurt feelings about this and a lot of people are upset because people genuinely believed that the election of Abu Bakr was just, a ret- again, a return to that Quraysh elite. The same people who had opposed Muhammad, the same people who had, um, you know, caused that social inequality. They were the ones reaping all the benefits and and everyone else was, was poor and there was this configuration between northern and southern. And suddenly here we are again with the Quraysh in charge. Now, Abu Bakr didn't live a particularly elitist life, so he kind of tried to break away from that. But it didn't help that after his death, he appointed Omar, yet another Quraishi, another one who was allied with the Banu Umayyah. And upon Omar's death, he, they had yet another election. And this election was again amongst a small council of people, and Uthman was elected as the third caliph. So three times Ali is passed over for the mantle of leadership, what is known as the Khalif. And this becomes a sore point. Not only were this the Qurayshi seeming to re-exert authority after the death of Muhammad, not only were the Quraysh yet again holding the reins of power, but by the time of Uthman, the Banu Umayyah were directly in charge. And Uthman was kind of a shameless nepotist. Uthman, while clearly a righteous and pious man in his own right, was also very much favored towards family. He appointed his family members to various positions. He appointed Marwan in, in Egypt, he appo- one of his uh, deputies in Egypt. He appointed his nephew, Muawiyah, to uh, governorship of Syria, the former territories of the Byzantines, um, because they had close allies with the Byzantine people. In fact, the conquest of the Levant and the former Byzantine territories were actually v- relatively easily done, and often with the help of the very uh, facile states of the Byzantines themselves as a result of that close association with this old empire, the Byzantine Empire. And so by the time of the Umayyads, we're like, there, there was serious tension. There was a serious resistance and and resentment. Sure, they had accepted Abu Bakr, okay, a bit begrudgingly. Then they accepted Omar a bit begrudgingly. The Shiatul Ali had accepted both of these people and then Uthman had come along and now they were getting really frustrated with Uthman's rule. And a group of the Shiatul Ali, which again, at this point, is not a fully formed theology, in the same way that Sunni Islam was not a fully formed theology, and certainly Sunni Islam is not just the people who accepted Abu Bakr and, and uh, Omar, because Sunni Islam develops much later. The majority of Muslims accepted Abu Bakr and Uthman right off the, the get-go, including the Shiatul Ali. So the, the later partisan interpretation. The Sunni and the Shia reinterpret these events uh, in a different way. But what we see here is by the time of Uthman, there is a lot of res- a lot of resentment building. Um, and particularly because there was a little bit of unfair, uh, you know, stacking of the deck. Here the Quraysh were yet again in charge. And so a group of the Shiatul Ali, a group had broken off known as the Kharajites. And the Kharajites were a far more extreme sect. These were people who said that society has, has already fallen into corruption. Society has already gone away from the message of the Quran. And the only way to restore it is through violence, that you'd have to fight to purify in order to restore. And this was not fighting against a foreigner. This was fighting from within.
within. And this is why when people often talk about Islam spread by the sword, they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Because the very first conflicts are within Muslim society themselves. It's not about converting other people. It's about out resolving what is within the Islamic society, Muslim society itself. So the Kharajites were very clearly ready to wage war. And they did. They eventually assassinated Uthman. And this led to Ali finally being elected and appointed the Khalif. But he was contested because right off the back, the Banu Umayyah, who were part of that Quraysh tribe, the Banu Umayyah, who were this powerful group that had emerged under Uthman's rule, that had see, seized several governorships and were gen military commanders and had all these kind of cushy jobs uh, because of their family connections, felt that they were going to be threatened by Ali, who was an egalitarian. Ali wanted to restore the kind of simple equality, simple egalitarian message of Muhammad, that it was not about tribal affiliations or allegiances that would determine whether you got a position, but based off of merit and merit alone, based off of your piety, your righteousness, and your accomplishments. You would not be, just because you were Banu Umayyah or Banu Hashim or Banu Hanif or any of these tribes, didn't mean that you would get a position. He wanted to return things to a simpler time, and the Banu Umayyah were not having it, and so they led a kind of rebellion against him, and and some of the old Qurayshi elite joined them. Uh, Al-Zubair, Al-Taha, -Al all kind of sided uh, against um, Ali. And there was this conflict. And Ali even at one point w went to battle at the Battle of Al-Qamal against Muhammad's uh, widow, Aisha. And Aisha, with her allies, fought against Ali. Eventually, it was reconciled. But the end result of this kind of negotiation and battle and back and forth is the Kharajites eventually turn on Ali and they kill and assassinate Ali. Now this leads to the establishment of the Umayyad dynasty. And the Umayyad dynasty uh, creates their own dynastic succession. It's no longer, they're not even bothering with elections, they're not even bothering, it's now very clearly one-sided, one-family rules, and it is the Banu Umayyah who are going to pass it down from family to family. And it's not always a direct father to son. At one point, it moves on to the Marwan line of the ba Banu Umayyah. So there's, it's complicated, but that becomes a major turning point. It becomes the first major turning point, or maybe the second. The first major turning point is Muhammad's death. And while the Shiatul Ali eventually accept the negotiations, by the death of uh, Ali, it's clear that the community has fallen away that ali wasn't just uh the fourth caliph that ali was was treated unjustly in these kind of ways of thinking about leadership it no longer became that ali should it was no longer that ali um was the person that we should be electing it was that ali was the only person who was rightly guided so even though the early community had negotiated and finally had accepted even with begrudgingly and more difficult with some difficulty abu bakr omar and then uthman by the time of ali's death it became the a much clearer articulation that said no 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 even though those earlier times we accepted them it's now clear to us now that that was corruption, that the only one who should have succeeded is Ali. Not that Ali was our best candidate, but Ali was the only candidate, and everyone else had fallen into corruption. And this, we started to see this uh, rejection, which is in the Rajid, uh, around 700 CE. So quite early on, we see this kind of idea of, of rejection, or Rafid, I'm sorry, Rafid. 
um, the the notion of rejection. Um, about seven hundred. That's about within about third within about uh, you know ninety years of Muhammad's death or so, almost something like that. Sixty years, I mean, sorry, sixty years of Muhammad's death or so. So by seven hundred, very early on, we had the Rafid, this idea of rejection, and this was predominantly as a res- response to the Umayyads. The Umayyads had clearly usurped. So even though the earlier Khalifs, the Rashidun, were negotiated and accepted by the majority. They had, as a result, had allowed the Umayyads to come to be. And the Umayyads, who were the, clearly a dynastic kingship, was completely in in opposition, axiomatically in opposition, to everything that Islam had, kind of the Islamic notions of leadership stood for. And so the Shiatul Ali completely rejected the Umayyad uh, di- dynasty's uh, claims in the same way that the Sunnis were not happy the kind of early proto-Sunnis and we should say they're not Sunnis yet you know, the proto-Sunnis had, and the majority of the kind of local Muslim communities had not uh, been happy with the Umayyads but they turned inward they said mm, the caliphate we're going to live Islamically in our personal lives even if the caliphate isn't going to be Islamic the uh, led itself, the Im, the the Shiatul Ali articulated a much clearer definition that said it's not just that the uh, the, the caliphate has failed, it is that it has become corrupted, and that is because it has gone away not only from the message of the Prophet, but from the dynasty of the Prophet, and so they started to argue, they started to articulate a different notion of the caliphate. And early on, there was not a clear articulation. Uh, the idea was that Ali was to be a leader because of his egalitarian stance, because of all these these different qualities, because he favored the southern tribes, because he favored the members of Medina, and so on and so forth. But after Ali's death, we start to hear more and more about Ali's relationship to the Prophet as being much more divine in nature. And this is uh, articulated and transcribed in the writings of someone known as Abdullah ibn Saba, who is the early, the, kind of the earliest influence on Shia Islam. Abdullah ibn Saba was a Yemenite Jew who converted to Islam. And he brought in a strong biblical, very much older notion of prophecy, one that Muhammad himself may have been gesturing to that we never clearly articulate. Uh, Muhammad, in much of the Quran, sees himself as a sort of new Moses. The one prophet that he has a lot of deep resonance with is Moses. And for Abdullah ibn Saba, that Moses uh, connection is very clear because Ali is to Muhammad what Aaron is is to Moses. In the older biblical and Jewish kind of notion of prophet, prophets come with executors. That is, there is a prophet and then there is someone that carries on their legacy. This person tends to be not a prophet themselves in that they don't have a direct connection to God, but they have a direct connection to the prophet. For Moses, this was Aaron. Aaron was his right-hand man. Aaron was the one who carried the rod. He was the one, you know, in the famous kind of Charlton Heston moment of striking the staff onto the waters and causing it to turn red in blood. That's actually Aaron that does it. He hands his staff to Aaron, and Aaron does that. So Aaron is the right-hand man of, of Moses. And this kind of notion, this biblical notion, becomes part of the early influences on Shiatul Ali vis-a-vis this person known as Abdullah ibn Saba. This idea of an executor is called Wasi. A Wasi is a person who is the uh, successor or the inheritor of the prophetic 
message. And there is a very clear kind of uh, re-looking and reinterpreting of the Qur'an because there are verses that certainly support this kind of notion. So first, when we look at Surah Imran, uh, this is a surah, surah 3, verse 104, and among you there should be a party who invite to good and enjoy what is right and forbid the wrong, and those it is that shall be successful. So there's this idea of a righteous community, a community that does right and forbids the wrong, that does good, so this is the Ummah, right? So there's an Ummah, but then who leads the Ummah? Well, that we see in Surah 32, verse 24. And we made from among them leaders guiding by our command when they were patient and when they were certain of our signs. And these leaders were known as Imams. So we start to see a different articulation of leadership from the Caliphate. The Caliphate originally started as a sort of a democratic, representative, electional office that was a placeholder the person was a placeholder this is what sunni islam was arguing there's a placeholder whose sole job was to be the custodian of the community he was not a king he was not a ruler he was merely a person who was supposed to administer justice and to ensure the preservation of the community be a, the uh, custodian indeed one of his roles was that as the commander of the armies to protect the integrity of the community um, but that that original conceptualization of the the caliphate had been corrupted and turned into a monarchy by the time of the Umayyads. So the Shiatul Ali argue an, a kind of parallel leadership, one that is not relying on the caliphate, but instead is known as the imamate, the imam. He is a leader who is guiding by the command of God, who is going to lead that community that invites the good and forbids the wrong. Well, how do you elect that leader? Well, that leader is through the dynastic connection through Muhammad. It's not just Muhammad. If Muhammad is Moses, then Ali is Aaron. And from Ali and his descendants, that is where the imamate comes from. And the imamate is not just this kind of custodian of the community. He is the leader of the community. He is the person who leads the prayers. He is the person who inherits the sort of charismatic mental of prophethood. The, the kind of mystical power, if you will, the charismatic component of prophethood doesn't just end with Muhammad. Prophecy ends with Muhammad, but the charismatic element of prophecy continues on in the wasi, the inheritor, the successor. And so you see this kind of parallel formation. In response to the kind of corruption of the Umayyads, there is then this re-interrogating of history that goes, this corruption didn't appear out of nowhere. This corruption was because from the very get-go, Ali was usurped. That the first caliphs, even though the early Shiatul Ali were just a partisan group, one faction that then eventually negotiated and accepted the first three caliphs, by the time of Ali's death, there is an, a, an attempt to reinterpret those events to kind of make sense. Because think of it, there's this trauma of suddenly having your leader killed. So having trying to make sense of how did we get to this moment of Ali getting killed? How is it possible that this, these other guys would be following Muawiyah? Muawiyah has no claim. He is the nephew of Uthman. Ali is obviously supposed to be a leader. Even if he weren't the part of the Shiatul Ali, he was the person who was righteous elected. So how could there be this division? Ah, well there can only be this division because the corruption started right at the death of Muhammad, that the people had turned away and that it wasn't just that Ali was the, our candidate, the person that we put forth to be the best candidate. He was the only candidate because the leadership is passed down 
dynastically. And so we start to see a very clear understanding of what it means to be part of the Shiatul Ali. It's not just the partisans of Ali, but there's now part of this new community, this community that is the Imamate. Now, it's easy to see Sunni Islam and Shia Islam as oppositional to one another, but in reality, they're not. Instead, the way that I kind of view them is actually preserving two very different but important essential qualities of Islam. For the uh, Sunnis, the eventual idea is that even though they also reject the kind of Umayyads, or at least take a quietist approach, that is, they pass no judgment, but they want no involvement either in politics, they view the caliphate as the steward, the role of the steward. And it's that preservation which we see in early Islam. We see it very clearly in uh, um, um, Muhammad electing Abu Bakr to be the leader of the community, to pray when Muhammad is not there, to deal with Muhammad's negotiations when Muhammad's not there. Abu Bakr was Muhammad's stand-in. And in so in many ways, the caliphate for the Sunnis becomes a preservation of that spirit, the essence of that. That the Khalif is really just a stand-in, a person who holds that place until the end of times, until Muhammad, until the the rightful rightful ruler of the world is returned, until the Mahdi returns, until the end of times comes out. He's just a placeholder who is there to protect the integrity of the community. In other words, he's just the agent of Muhammad. Not the agent of God, just the agent of Muhammad. When Shias preserve some other component of Islam, and that is the charismatic component of, of Muhammad. The Muhammad had this personal power, personal magnetism that kept people together, and then that personal magnetism passed on. That spiritual leadership is not just a placeholder, but is living and enduring and continues on in his family line. Both of these conceptions of leadership are at are present within Islam. So Sunnis and Shias I don't see as, as oppositional, even though in history they have conflicted and they have fought. I personally, as a historian, see them as preserving just two different seeds that they have nurtured. Both of those seeds are in early Islam. Both of those seeds are found in the Quran. Both of those seeds are found in the Hadith. But they be, they're both um, preserving that at one aspect of, of Islamic leadership. And for Shia, and they're both responding to historical circumstance. For the Shiatul Ali, the death of Ali is tragic and it starts that turn away from, from the community. This is then further confirmed by the Battle of Karbala. The Battle of Karbala so by 6700, we had already started to see the, the language of the Wasi and whatnot. And we had seen the kind of early ideas, the early biblical and Jewish ideas of, of prophethood and its uh, executor uh, coming into Islam vis-a-vis -vis Abdullah ibn Saba, uh, something that Muhammad himself recognized. He, he really saw himself. But the, uh, the next event, the next kind of turning point is the Battle of Karbala, which is in October 10th of 680 CE. In the Battle of Karbala, the descendant of Muawiyah, Yazid the first leads a massive military con uh, campaign against Hussein ibn Ali, the son of Ali, the younger son of Ali, and the grandson of Muhammad. Um, and Muawiyah was basically appointed as an Umayyad Khalif. Here was, uh, I mean, Muawiyah, who had taken over the caliphate after Ali had been assassinated, he took it over. Uh, he appointed his son. Yazid. Now, this was the first time that that dynastic succession, that someone, they didn't have an election, they didn't get an appointment. Just Muawiyah goes, you know what, my son is going to be in charge after me. That was a big deal. And, and uh, Hussein, who was 
part of the Shiatul Ali and who had really started to see this as an usurpation, usurpation of his father, refused to give allegiance to Yazid and, and he felt righteous about it. And he rallied his community to him. And again, this community was predominantly made up of the tribes of Iraq, um, and these are of Kufa in particular, and these were tribes that originally had connections to the Sasanians. Whereas um, uh, Yazid and his Umayyad connections, his Banu Umayyad connections, drew upon the tribes that were predominantly Byzantine. So again, we see these kind of those old tribal allegiances come to the forefront in the Battle of Karbala, and the Battle of Karbala was a horrific. Um, uh, moment it was a mo- in Islamic history both for people who were the partisans of Ali and both who were not because uh, Yazid who had kind of broken this earlier treaty known as the Hassan and Muawiyah treaty a treaty that Muawiyah and Hassan reached after the death of Ali in order to preserve the integrity and, and unity of the community Yazid by breaching it by being appointed as leader usurping and breaking that treaty um, you know, he had the uh, Hussein had the right to call him out on it. Hussein had the right to to challenge him, but Yazid didn't believe so, and Yazid was more military militarily powerful, and he led his campaign against this much smaller force that ended with the slaughter of Hussein and his entire family, including his infant child. Um, the idea of that within. Uh, a few years of Muhammad's death, 50 years, I mean, you know, less than 50 years, 20 years or so. This is why I'm a history major, not a math major. <laughs> Within about 20 years or so, um, the descendants of Muhammad were being slaughtered by people who were claiming to be Muslim. The Umayyad is a horrible moment, and it is why it led to a deep schism. But where the Sunnis saw the Battle of Karbala, the proto Sunnis, right? They're not fully Sunni yet, and went the Caliphate. Something has happened here, and we're going to turn inward. And you started to see a writing down of the Hadith and the, sh- the development and the systemization of the Sharia, the idea of internalizing Islam. We're going to live Islam in the Jamaat, in the local community, even if the Caliphate, which we believed is this custodianship, has kind of gone away from custodianships for the Shiatul Ali the death of of Hussein and the family of the Prophet in the battle of the Karbala was a, the final nail in the coffin it was the full schism the idea that the caliphate could not be redeemed the caliphate has been lost and so a new parallel leadership had to exist known as the imamate and this imamate was the preservation of Muhammad's original intention that his leadership would pass on to his descendants and everything else all the caliphates that that did their own thing from the Rashidun, even though the early Shiatul Ali did negotiate that, they were wrong. They're saying, nope, those, even from that moment, the second of Muhammad's death, up until Yazid, that is a sign of corruption. There is only, what other way could we explain the fact that the Battle of Karbala happened, is what the Shiatul Ali would say. How else can we explain that the very people who claim to be Muslim would then end up killing the descendants of the prophets and that was the, the f- full beginning of the transition away by 680 to about 700 and then 700 when we start to see very clear the idea of wasi this idea of the executor being articulated even though we had some earlier attempts right after the death of uh, ali but much more clear by the time of 700 ce and the idea of rafat the idea of complete and total rejection of the caliphate that the imamate was the true uh, redemptive power that was the charismatic leadership of muhammad passed on by the time of 750 ce the shiatul ali even though they remained a minority 
the dis- they had joined forces with other disgruntled Muslims, Muslims who were very angry at the way the direction the Umayyads were going, this dynastic succession, and they led what is known as the Abbasid Revolt in 750 under a guy named Asafa. And Asa, the idea was both the proto-Sunnis who had turned away from the caliphate, the uh, Mawali who were Persian converts, as well as the Shiatul Ali joined forces and said, we are going to restore the caliphate to what it's meant to be. And we're going to do so by, with a descendant of Muhammad, maybe not a direct descendant, but through his uncle Abbas, hence the Abbasid Caliphate in 751 under uh, Asafa. Now, of course, the Abbasids didn't end up following through on their promises, even though they claimed to be favored towards the Shiat al-Ali, the Aliyad party, they claimed descendant from Muhammad, they claimed that they would restore the caliphate to his custodial role, they also were monarchs and rulers and whatnot. But that's a brief history of Shiat Islam, hopefully that's useful to you. You can see how it starts with the death of Muhammad, how it deals with the election, with the kind of uh, tribal machinations, the return of the old tribal resentments, how it is shaped by um, the experience of Ali's election and then Ali's death and then it is shaped by the battle of Karbala and how those historical experiences uh, produce the theological ideas in the same way they did do for Islam. Now I'm not saying one comes before the other but both of these things intersect. The experience of Karbala, the experience of the death of Ali with the articulation of the idea of the Wasi and the Rafid, the executor of Muhammad, the, 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 the charismatic lineage, uh, power being passed down dynastically in the rejection of the caliphate and the establishment of the a parallel imamate. In the next episode, we're going to talk more deeply about theology. We're going to talk about the different ideas about the nature of the Quran, God, etc. with the uh, debates between the Ahli al-Hadith, the Ashari, uh, the Mutazali. We're going to talk about how those in turn fully develop within these different denominations. And as a result, we now can say, Sunni Islam and Shia Islam. Up until now, we're still talking about proto-Sunnis and proto-Shias. But next episode, you'll see how these two denominations fully develop. Thanks for tuning in. I'm not going to give a book recommendation. I'll be giving book recommendations in the third one, which will cover all three episodes. Um, Let me know what your thoughts are. You can hit me up on social media. Otherwise, remember, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds. (laughs) 